tonight is on the second commandment. Uh, we'll go ahead and read together the words of that second commandment along with Luther's explanation from the small catechism. The second commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we do not use his name to curse swear, lie, or deceive, or use witchcraft, but call upon God's name in every trouble. Pray, praise, and give thanks. O Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name. Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What is a Montague? No, it is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other word would still smell as sweet. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owns without that title. Romeo, doff thy name, and for that name which is no part of thee, take all myself. Not a scripture quote, but I think you knew that. Where is it from? Jacob, you got it? What? Shakespeare. Yeah, William Shakespeare. I heard some identify the name of the play, Romeo and Juliet. It's a part of Act 2, Scene 2, where Juliet is questioning, what's a name? Because names were the problem with her and Romeo. She was a Capulet, he was a Montague, and Capulets and Montagues didn't talk to each other, so they wouldn't be allowed to love each other, they couldn't be together, and it was all because of their names. So what's in a name, she wants to know. The idea, the thought behind Juliet's monologue here is that a name is just a label. It's just a thing that we come up with and, and put onto something so that we have a way to refer to it. But we could change that. There could be another name, and the thing would still be exactly the same. A name is just a, a human construct then. And I think that's true for most things. But I'm not sure it's true when we talk about this name. Is God's name just a label? Is it just some human construct, something that we assigned to him so that we would have something to refer to him by? Well, the easy answer is no. Because God's name, the names that we have for God by which we speak to him and refer to him, they aren't names that came from us. They're names that came from him. We look throughout the scriptures and there's over 900, almost 1,000 different names and titles 
that God reveals to us, through which he reveals to us certain things about himself, his identity, who he is, the kind of God that he is, the the things that he has done for us, the things that he has promised that he has yet to do for us. God's name is unlike any other name. God's name is the one name that has power to do things. His name has the power to save from sin and death. St. Peter testified to that in Acts chapter 4. He had been arrested for preaching the name of Jesus, and he spoke to the rulers who arrested them and said, Salvation is found in no one else but Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, says that God the Father has given to Jesus the name that is above all names. There is only one name that has the power to cast down the forces of Satan and to drive demons out of those whom they possess, and that's the name of Jesus. There is only one name into which sinful people can be brought through the saving waters of baptism to have their sins washed away and to be brought into God's family, and that is the name of our triune God. And and at baptism, God puts his name on you. He gives you his name, like a husband gives his name to his wife when they're married, or like parents give their name to their children when they're born or when they're adopted into the family. God has given his name to you, bringing you into his family. And so now we have the family rules that we have to abide by as members of God's family. And rule number two is don't misuse that name. I have a prop which I forgot to bring down with me. Jeff, you'll recognize this. I brought along my old high school football jersey. Jeff also played on the football team at Michigan Lutheran Seminary. Good memories wearing this jersey. On Fridays when we had our games, we got to wear the jersey all day long uh, to class and to school. And every week, the night before Thursday night, as we were wrapping up practice, my coach would always have the same sort of little spiel with us. Gentlemen, when you wake up tomorrow morning and you put that jersey on, remember the name that's on the jersey. And he'd say, I'm not talking about the idiot whose name is on the back. I'm talking about the name on the front. Remember whose name you are putting on because that is who you are when you put that jersey on. That's who you represent. And then act accordingly. Do not misrepresent this school while you're wearing the jersey. I think it would be helpful for us if our wardrobe consisted entirely of clothes that said right across the front, disciple of Jesus. I think it would be a good reminder for us and a good reminder for other people around us that we're going to be acting and thinking and speaking differently. Because whether we wear the disciple of Jesus jersey or not, we are, every morning when we get up, putting on Jesus 
and going out into the world. And we're representing him. We're representing his church. We're representing something that is much bigger than just us. And so we ought to act accordingly. If I was a knucklehead while I was wearing this jersey and did something that I wasn't supposed to do, then people could say that I was giving the school a bad name. The name of the school wouldn't actually change. It would still be Michigan Lutheran Seminary. But what we mean by that when we say you're giving it a bad name is that we're tarnishing the reputation. If me being a knucklehead is what people think of when they hear the name Michigan Lutheran Seminary, then that's not good for my school. That's not good for my school's reputation. If you being hateful or arrogant or hypocritical is what people think of when they hear the name Jesus, then that's not good for our Savior or our Savior's reputation. So how do we wear the name of Jesus well and not misuse or misrepresent or abuse the name that our God has given us, the name by which we are saved, the name that he placed on us when he brought us into his family? Luther has several suggestions a nice list of guidelines, things that we should not do and things that we should do to help to wear that name as well as we can. But we could read through this list, and I think we could walk away thinking of it as a checklist. If I don't do this, 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 or this, and I accomplish this, this, that, and the other thing, then I've kept the second commandment. But I'd like to invite you to look at this commandment less as a checklist and more as an invitation for a transformation of your entire way of living. First of all, Luther starts off, he says, we should fear and love God that we don't use his name to curse, swear, lie, or deceive. And cursing and swearing, when we hear those, we think of the same thing. We think of four-letter words or we think of using the Lord's name in vain dropping the, the OMG, or screaming out our Lord's name when our toe comes in contact with the coffee table on our way across the living room. <coughs> That's not exactly what Luther was getting at with those two words, but I don't think it's out of line for us to talk about those kinds of instances. When we consider that the word coming out of our mouth is the one name by which souls on this world can be saved. That this is the name of the triune God who has adopted me, a wretched sinner, into his family. Then it's not the word that I want to be coming out of my mouth in that situation. I have to think about the words coming out of my mouth and what it is that they mean. But when Luther says cursing, what he's really talking about here is entering into judgment on someone. It, cursing is really a prayer. It's a prayer for our God to judge that person, to smite that person. So phrases like, kids, close your ears, damn it, 
or go to hell are phrases by which what we're really saying is inviting our God, whether we say them in anger or whether we say them in jest, in jest inviting our God to come down and to condemn that thing or that person to an everlasting eternity in hell. Because one of the things that we learn about with God's name, one of the things he's revealed to us about himself is that he has created this place called hell, which is to be the everlasting punishment for those who reject him. And I don't think when we say the D word, when we kick the coffee table, that we really want Jesus to come down from his heavenly throne and banish that table to the depths of hell for all eternity. But if that's not what we mean, then maybe we should choose different words to say. Because that's what those words really mean. And so if we think about this as a lifestyle, we just think, who is it that I want to wake up every morning and walk out the door to be? Is it someone who says things so carelessly that I can take these words of everlasting meaning and treat them so candidly? Or do I want to be the kind of person who has the wisdom to think just enough before I open up my mouth so that the words that I do choose to say can be words that will bring praise and glory to my God. We shouldn't use God's name to swear either. And swearing here is, is calling on God as a witness to testify to the fact that what we are saying is true. I swear I'm telling the truth. And you can say just, I swear, or you can say, I swear to God. You can say, I swear on the ground that we're standing on, but the Bible tells us God made that. It doesn't make any difference. When you swear, you're calling God into it. As a witness, first of all, that you're telling the truth, and as the one who's going to hold you accountable if you don't, maybe that's not really what we want to be saying either. Wouldn't it be better if instead of being someone who has to swear to convince someone that we're telling the truth, if we just, as we walked out the door as disciples of Jesus, were honest, authentic, trustworthy people with a reputation for telling the truth so that when we say something to someone the first time, they believe us? Then he goes on to say we shouldn't use this name of our God to lie or to deceive. There should never be a situation where we are telling somebody that there is something about our God or something that he says and we're bold-faced lying to them about it. But I don't know that that's really a temptation that I struggle with that much and I'm guessing most of you don't either. We are here in a church that cares very deeply about what God truly says in his word. And I don't see many people here trying to put their own thoughts in and say this is God's word. But I think a temptation that I do have often is when there's an opportunity where I ought to be sharing my God's word, sharing something about him, about who he is, about what he's done, and I'm tempted to just cover up the name on the shirt and melt away back into the corner. 
because I'm afraid that if I do say something, I might make the situation awkward, or I might add some, some tension and friction into that relationship. But by not sharing what my God has shared with me, I'm really deceiving. I'm giving the impression that this is okay or that I'm okay with it because I'm not sharing what my God has shared with me. The last don't do that Luther gives, he says don't use witchcraft. Maybe some of you learned another translation. Don't, don't use God's name superstitiously. When it comes to questions about what's going to happen with the rest of my life, when we want to get to know our future, there's one place we can go to look, and that's the Word of God. It's our God's name. It's his reputation. It's everything that he's revealed to us about himself. And where God is silent and doesn't fill in all of the blanks for us, we just have to commit ourselves into his hands and trust that he has our everlasting good in mind for us, that he is ruling for our everlasting good, and we have to trust that he knows what he's doing. But turning to outside sources, sources beyond our God, to try to divine or interpret what our future is going to be, something as innocuous as the horoscope section in the newspaper, does a disservice to the name of our Lord who tells us he is the one who has us in his hands and he will take care of us. So we don't want to misuse the name that our God has put on us, but we do want to use it. We want to use the wonderful things that he's told us about himself and use it well. And Luther says we can do that when we call on his name in every trouble and pray and praise and give thanks. But again, let's not think if I do each one of those things one time, then I'm set for the day. I've kept the commandment. But let's adopt it as a lifestyle, as what we do. We have a God who invites, who really commands us to call upon me in the day of trouble. And he promises, I will deliver you. So whatever it is that keeps us from doing that, from having Jesus be the first one we go to when we're in trouble, let's get to the bottom of it, root it out, and throw it away. Because that is an awesome promise. Call upon me and I will deliver you. It means you never have to be in trouble alone. What a wonderful comfort that is. And I think what gets in the way usually is that our view of God is too small. Because if I have a small view of God, then I will think of him little. But the more I think of my God, and the more incredible his love and his care for me are in my own eyes, then when trouble comes, he's going to be the first thing I think about and the first one that I turn to. So if we need our God to be bigger in our mind, then we simply need to spend more time with him in his word, listening to his name, learning about who he is and what it is he's done for us. But he doesn't just want us to come and speak to him when we're in trouble. And so we continue to pray other prayers as well. Pray continually, he says. I want to hear you talking to me and I want to hear it 
all the time. When you wake up, when you're going to sleep, as you sit down to eat, when you're in the car driving somewhere, just talk to your father and tell him about your day. He loves to hear from you. It doesn't have to be a request. It can just simply be, here I am, here's what's going on. And then we have direction for our prayers with those last two suggestions, to praise and give thanks. When I pray to my God, I can praise him for the amazing things he's done. And I can give him thanks for the blessings that he's given me, the, the answered requests. I can take requests not just for myself, but for other people and pray for them when they're in trouble. And all of those things that we can do on our own in prayer as we speak to our Father, we can also then do with other people, publicly, like we're doing right now, gathering together to praise our God by listening to his word and singing songs, which is always more fun when there's a group of us than when you're by yourself. At least I think so. And we give thanks. We give thanks together. Here at church or at home with your family as you talk to your kids about the great things that God has done for you over the course of the day. Or you talk to your spouse. Or, or you call a friend and say, hey, listen to how God's blessed me today. That praises his name. And, and it's a good use of the name that he's given us. So we give thanks. We give thanks for a God who came down into this world to save us from sin. The same God who has promised to return to deliver us from this world of sin. And we give thanks for his name. The name which he saved us with. The name which he has placed on us and given to us and the name that he now invites us to share with the people that he's placed in our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.